Matthew chapter 18 is where we're at. You might want to open up your Bibles and follow along. I will actually be mentioning a bit of context today, so you might want to have a look at the passages before and after our passage. It is always important to have a look where, uh, where the gospel writers sort of arrange their, how they arrange their gospels. They, they, they craft their gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John craft their gospels, edit their gospels in a way to present a message. And Matthew chapter 18 certainly hits on a theme. And our reading this morning is right in the middle of it from verse, uh, from verse 15. Before we get into the reading itself, I want to make an allusion back to the very start of Scripture, back to the very opening pages of Scripture itself. I want to take us back to Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel. They're the first uh, children, two brothers, the first children of, of Adam, and, Adam and, and Eve. And they're the very first people who come into conflict with each other. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of, of Cain and Abel. Uh, Sin has tragically entered the world. Sin, the tragedy of sin is that it breaks relationships. It hurts our relationship with God and with one another. So sin has entered the world. And, and, and Cain is jealous of his brother Abel. He's jealous of the favor that he enjoys from God. And, and Cain, uh, I'm sure many of you know, actually ends up murdering his brother Abel. Well, God comes looking for Cain. God comes wandering uh, through and, and calling out to Cain, trying to restore the relationship. And he, and he asks Cain a, a, a famous question. He says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain's response, his infamous response, uh, I'm sure many of you know it off by heart, but it's a callous response. Uh, he says, am I my brother's keeper? He callously denies any responsibility towards his own brother. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, church, we realize that that sort of a response is not just the response of a murderer seeking to deny his wrongdoing. It's actually a sentiment that creeps up within each of us. It's actually a feeling that we all kind of have to struggle with from time to time. Well, no, it's not my problem. Who am I to say anything to that person? They're, they're a grown adult. She's an adult. They can make their own decisions. It's not up to me. Why should I meddle? I shouldn't be meddling. It's none of my business. Now, of course, in many situations, church, it is we, we are wise to, to mind our own business, particularly when we don't have all of the facts. But when someone is plunging, into, plunging themselves into danger, in, into sin, whether they know it or not, don't we, don't we have a responsibility to, to say something, to, to warn them? Perhaps? Well, in our passage today, Jesus says yes. Jesus says yes, you do have a responsibility to your brother and to your sister. All of Matthew chapter 18, this passage today, is, is Jesus saying yes, you are your brother and your sister's keeper. Our passage today from Jesus is Jesus telling us to take a risk of loving truthfulness, of loving truthfulness. He calls on us to, to, to know that sin is more than just my business, that it's the community's business. He calls us to be a people who know that our sins are forgiven, who are therefore confident enough, brave enough, loving enough, in fact, honest enough, real enough with each other to, to call out each other's sins. So Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through to 20 uh, says this. 
If your brother or sister sins and you point out their fault, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others. Take one or two others along so that every matter might be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you agree on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Church, let's pray. Our loving Lord, please help this scripture to come alive for us. We pray that you might help us to apply it wisely in our lives. We seek to be not simply hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. I pray that you might increase and that I might decrease in all that is said and in all that is heard. And all the people said, Amen. Sometimes you'll hear me say that the Christian faith is not so much a religion, but a relationship. I really don't like this word religion. Uh, religion carries all sorts of negative connotations. Religion's about doing a whole bunch of good things and not doing a whole bunch of bad things and trying to earn your way into God's good books. It's not to try to twist God's arm into accepting you as a, as a good person. I really don't like this word religion. It sort of, a, sort of insinuates that the Christian faith is just about keeping a whole bunch of, of rules. But in fact, the Christian faith is really a relationship. I tell people whenever I'm out on the street, Christianity, that Jesus calls us into relationship. We're not called into religion. We're called into relationship, a life-giving relationship with God, the creator of the cosmos through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. It's not a set of rules. It's a relationship with God. It's a relationship that is made possible through his amazing grace, through sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Our relationship with God is indeed our most important relationship we'll ever have. He needs to be number one. But he's also very concerned about our earthly relationships as well. Our relationships with each other are also extremely important to God. And in today's reading, it's all about our relationships with each other, with each other here in the church. And you might like to think of when Jesus quoted what the greatest, he's asked what the greatest command is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. But then he said, the second is also like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Or you might like to think back to the Ten Commandments that we started uh, studying the year, didn't we? We talked about the Ten Commandments one week and we learned how the first four commandments deal with the vertical relationship with God, but the next six actually deal with the horizontal, the relationships with each with each other. Both sets of relationships are important to God. He wants all of our relationships, both the vertical with him and the horizontal with each other, to be healthy and whole and well and, and life-giving. Jesus called his disciples, he calls you and I, uh, to follow him. But to, yes, to, to follow him, but to gather together uh, as one in what we call the church, the community, the body of Christ. well-known psychologist by the name of M. Scott Peck talked about community, talked about the different levels of which people come together in community. And he called the first level of community, he called it pseudo-community. He talked about pseudo-community being tragically 
the only form of community that many communities ever get to. They never actually get any deeper than what he called pseudo-community. Pseudo-community is where everyone pretends that they're a community. They pretend they know each other, but deep down, they really don't. Pseudo-community is where people assure themselves that any differences are really just superficial and there's no real reason, no real deep conflict going on. In pseudo-community, people mind their own manners. They, they keep to themselves uh, behind a polite sort of a, a smile. Conversations go, hey, Hank, how was, your, how was your week? Yeah, good, thanks, Reg. And it, conversation never really gets much deeper than that. In churches, a pseudo-community goes something along the lines of, well, we know that the minister's frightfully good-looking. Uh, his, his sermons are always... Uh, is super powerful or at least engaging or at least thought-provoking. His children are always perfectly behaved, of course. His wife makes the best cucumber sandwiches this side of Bondi Beach. Of course, you know all of the things that a minister's family's supposed to do. You know, the music team's super slick. You know they've been rehearsing all week. They're really dialed in. You'll uh, know that the welcomers welcome everyone to their seat, make them feel part of the family, introduce them, and they feel instantly welcome, part of the crew. You'll know that the morning teas are super scrumptious every single Sunday. And even if they're not, I mean, even if they're not, you'd never say anything about it. Well, because that would be impolite, wouldn't it? That would be rude. We never actually say anything. We never actually dig deep enough to have any sort of a conflict because conflict is avoided at all costs. Quite often, of course, the real conversations are had in the meeting after the meeting, down in the car park where real things are said. Well, Matthew chapter 18 is Jesus raging against this sort of pseudo-community. Matthew chapter 18 is Jesus teaching against pseudo-community, calling us to something better than just being a a pseudo-community. He calls us to be a forgiven and a forgiving people. A forgiving people who are so saturated in grace, so saturated in graciousness that we can risk being honest with each other, being open with each other. He calls us to a loving truthfulness, a loving truthfulness. Because let's be honest, Jesus took sin very seriously, didn't he? Uh, Jesus knew that my sin is not just my problem. He knew that my sin, Pete Chapman's sin, is not really just between me and God. He knew that it has a public dimension to it. He knew that my sin affects you. My sin affects those around me. It infects the, the community. Our sin poisons relationships with, with our Heavenly Father, but also with with one another. Sin is eternally dangerous. We have a duty to warn people about this this danger, especially our brothers and sisters in in Christ. My sin is not just my own business. It's the business of everyone who knows me. And that means having the occasional hard conversation about it. It's like that elderly member of the family that really should have handed in their driver's license a few years ago. Now listen, Grandma... I think you should hand in, mind your own business. She fails to realise that it's not just her business. Her family are the ones going to have to deal with the phone call that might one day come. And it's in fact the business of everyone that shares a road with, with grandma. So too, 
in the church, my stuff, my muck, my sin. It's not just mine, it, it affects the people around me. And think too in your life, your sin actually hurts the people closest to you, closest to you most. I want us to note at the outset that sin isn't necessarily something that I disagree with, right? We all have different opinions, we all have different tastes. Uh, someone might choose something, someone close to me might make what I think is an unwise decision. They might choose a career path that I'm not sure that I do. Schooling options, books to read, movies to watch, places to live. These things aren't necessarily sin, just because I happen to disagree with them, right? Sin is not a matter of opinion. Sin is, is open disregarding of what God has, has says is what is right and, and what is wrong. So if someone says, oh, sin is, is, is no big deal, sin is, oh, I'm not hurting anyone. You'll hear that quite a lot. I'm not, not hurting anyone. Church, can I encourage you to think sin always hurts, at the very least, the one who's, who's committing it. Sin is ultimately disastrous because it breaks our relationship with God. That is why sin is so dangerous. It breaks our relationship with God. That is why the fall was so tragic broke our relationship with God and left, if left unchecked, unrepentant sin, let's be honest, church, leads to the eternal agony of eternal separation from God. Sin is, is dangerous, but church is precious. I love the church. I love being part of the church. Every Sunday morning when I get up here and welcome you to church and I say, I love being part of the church, I'm not just saying that because I'm the minister. I really do love the church. I love being part of a church. I, I can't ever think of a time when I wouldn't want to be part of a church. One day when they kick me out of ministry and, and, I, and I hopefully retire, I would still very much hope to be part of, of a church. I love the church. I, I love being part of the church. I think it's the only way to live. It's the only way to do real life. Nothing else is is really going to go the distance and the relationships that we build here in the body of Christ. I, personally speaking, don't really think much else is really worth committing to. Now, I love the people in all the tennis clubs I've ever been a part of. Last night, we had a wonderful meal with some beautiful people over at East Leagues Club in the rugby league community, the Clovelly Crocodiles, beautiful people. Uh, I've loved being part of the pickleball community. They're evangelizing, taking over the world with pickleball. Lovely people, all, all of them. But the church is really what I'm about because ultimately I'm not called to be a pickleball evangelist. I'm called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to share the world, share with the world the saving, his saving, his saving grace. But like any worthwhile endeavor, let's be honest, church is hard work. Church can be hard. Church can be tough sometimes. I like the following analogy you might have heard of about, about church. Church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm outside, you couldn't possibly stand the smell inside. I think it's true that the church does smell at times. It is the smell of sin, the, the stench of, of sin. In another part of my life at the moment, I'm dealing with some really difficult stuff within the church and and people who have given their lives to serving the church are wondering, is it all worth it? And why would I bother if this, is how I, if this is how I'm treated? Church can be tough. Church is filled with sinful people like you and me. 
prideful people, hurtful people. But knowing how terrifying it is out there, I'll, I'll gladly take life living inside the ark, despite the occasional stink of sin. Many of our worst conflicts in church happen because at some point you had the opportunity to say, can we talk? Listen, mate, can I, can I share with you something? Hey, listen, sister, can I, can, I, can, can, I, can I name something for you? But we didn't, and now things are worse. Sometimes we need someone to take us aside and say, I'm concerned about you. Why don't you consider letting go of those keys? Letting go of that relationship, letting go of whatever it is that you're gripping to so tightly that I can see is hurting. Sin is like a splinter in our, in our finger. Nobody likes digging around, nobody likes getting the splinter removed, but it's got to go because it risks infection and actually making it a whole lot worse, can make the whole body sick. Nobody likes having another person dig around in their finger trying to get a splinter out. Splinters mean tweezers and poking and prodding and, and cutting. It's much easier, isn't it, just to go, what's what splinter? I don't have a splinter. Much easier, much less painful that way, isn't it, in the short term at least. And let's be honest, sometimes we want to pretend like we didn't see the splinter in that other person's finger either because we don't feel like doing the poking. It's almost like we, can, we persuade ourselves, we look the other way that that ignoring the problem is actually the loving, kind thing to do. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great uh, German pastors during Nazi Germany who stood opposed, you've heard me preach about Dietrich Bonhoeffer before, he said, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to sin. Let me say that again. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a sister or a brother back from the path of sin. Do you like that one? So Jesus has given us a very practical how-to guide. Pretty simple, three-step guide in terms of how to name some of the sin in, in our midst to, to make sure that it doesn't get a foothold in our lives. I'm sure some of you will be very familiar with it. Firstly, we should just go to... Go to the person ourselves. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't make it public. Don't speak to anybody else about it. Go to the person directly. It's always better. Church, please, can I encourage you? Come to me directly if you've got a problem. Please go to the person directly. Just the two of you. Name it. See if you can sort it out. If that doesn't work, you might need to take one or two others who love them, who they value, and to name the sin. And if that still doesn't work, at that point, then he said to take it to, to the church and ultimately, if this still doesn't work, then you need to treat them, Jesus says, interesting phrase here when you think about it, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Just keep that in mind for a moment. In the end, it's their lack of repentance that really means that the person has cut themselves off from God's forgiveness. We see this all the time in the church. I've seen this numerous times as a minister. The church has tried to do the right thing. Well, the church gets things wrong. The church stinks. But occasionally, I must say, most of the time even, the church tries to do the right thing and it gets thrown back in the church's face. The person leaves in really ungracious and hurtful ways, lobbing grenades. As they go, it, it hurts. It hurts. They've rejected God's clear direction on what's right and wrong, what's good and life-giving in their life. 
They decided that their actions are fine. They don't need forgiveness for this sin, but they're fine to stand before God in judgment for it. There's not much more we can do at that point but to leave the door open and hopefully maybe someone else can touch them and work in their lives and, and lead them home. We often hear this teaching from Jesus, those of you who are familiar with it, sometimes it's seen as like a bit of a three strikes and you're out kind of a teaching from Jesus. But really, can I encourage your church to see this teaching more of a, well, you've decided to leave the field, you've decided to leave the playing field, and we would like to invite you to, to come back into the game. I think this teaching from Jesus isn't about punishment, but leaving open the doorway to restoration. And as always, it is important to look at the context of this teaching. Have a look if you've got it open there at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew has arranged his gospel in, in such a way that Jesus' words here about confronting a brother or a sister who sin comes right on the heels of Jesus' parable about the lost sheep. A lost sheep, one lost sheep from a flock of a hundred goes, goes wandering off. And he says that heaven is more rejoicing when that one lost sheep returns than the 99 that never wandered off in the first place. And these words from Jesus come just before his command to Peter to practice forgiveness without even calculation. 70 times 7. He's not asking Peter to forgive 490. He says, just keep on forgiving. Jesus saying, just go on forgiving endlessly. And then he follows it up with, it, with a parable about an unforgiving servant, his servant who'd been forgiven a king's ransom, but doesn't extend that same forgiveness to one of his, his fellow servants. So Jesus' teaching here about pointing out a brother or a sister's fault comes literally between two teachings about practicing grace over and over and over again. It is, in fact, a bit of a, a, bit of a grace sandwich, if you, if you will. This teaching on calling out sin is nestled between two buffers of grace, both before and, and after. It's clear that the process that Jesus described here isn't about kicking anyone off the island. It's about winning them back, those who, have, by their words of actions, have left the fold, uh, whether they've realized it yet or not. Trying to exercise this sort of discipline in the church without exercising this tremendous grace before and after. It's like trying to eat a hamburger without the bun. It just doesn't work and you're just going to end up in a mess. Don't do it. Don't do it. Loving truthfulness stands upon a firm foundation of mercy and, and grace. And can I encourage you to think too, only people who are secure in themselves can have this sort of hard conversation. Only a people who know themselves to be forgiven sinners can ever be this honest with each other. The promise and the assuredness of grace, knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you've been washed clean, knowing that you're in right relationship with God is, is what can create a space to have these hard conversations, to get past sort of crippling insecurity and fear. Only a forgiven people who do not fear their own past about God holding something in their past against them. And only people who don't fear for their future, don't fear God's judgment because of their relationship with Jesus. Only those people can then go out and not fear their neighbour to have these hard conversations. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. It's so true, isn't it? If we're fearful of what other people think of us, then we're never going to be able to have these hard conversations. So too, church, can I encourage you to think about, well... 
Because I think actually when I read, if I'm honest with you, Church, when I read this passage, I think, oh, that's what I need to do when I see somebody else in sin. But why don't we flip the tables? What if, what if I'm on the receiving end of one of these conversations? How, why don't we allow this passage to speak to us so that maybe, oh, okay, I, I need to be gracious. I need to, to, to be... I need to be humble. Maybe they don't have all the facts and maybe I'll need to graciously point some context out to them. Why don't we together dig into God's word to see what God thinks on, on the matter and, and, and work together on, on working this through. This work is going to be sometimes be difficult regardless of whether or not you're the person doing the uh, addressing or whether you're the one being addressed, being called out for sin. Uh, so let's be careful about being too sanctimonious. I love the saying that says, the power of hell is strongest when the odour of sanctity creates the smell. Do you love? The power of hell is strongest when the odour of sanctity creates the smell. Jesus reserved his strongest condemnation for the religious stuck-up types, didn't he? The great reformer of the church, Martin Luther. I love this quote about the church. In the 1500s, he wrote a similar sort of thing. He says, O oh Lord, Deliver me from Christian churches with nothing but Christian saints in them. Interesting thing to say. Deliver me from churches with nothing but Christian saints in them. I want to remain and be part of a church which is a little flock of faint-hearted people, weak people, who know and feel their sin, their poverty, their misery, and they believe in the forgiveness of God. I think they're about colourful programs, Trendy youth workers, good-looking ministers, nothing even about the minister's great preaching. Luther just wanted a real family of faith. He just wanted to be a part of a community of real people that were open and caring for each other, prepared to have those tough conversations. What about this final step as we wrap up? What about this final step? He says, whenever someone refuses to, to be admonished even by the church, he says to treat them as a a Gentile or a tax collector. Have a think about that for a moment. Have a think about the context here for a moment. Didn't Jesus spend a lot of time with Gentiles and tax collectors? Who's writing this gospel? Matthew. And what was his profession? He was a tax collector, friends. Tax collectors writing this story. Jesus loved spending time with Gentiles, tax collectors. He called them to repentance. He healed them. He healed members of their family. He called on, to, he invited them to correct their rights and their wrongs, to be a disciple. I think all this means we should never give up on people. We should always leave the door open for people to come back into, into relationship. And finally, as a means of encouraging you uh, this morning uh, to have, some, have those difficult conversations, Jesus gives us a promise, doesn't he? He says, for whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You'll often hear this uh, phrase quoted whenever only two or three people turn up to a Bible study in church, don't you? We love to claim this, oh, whenever two or three are gathered, I've said it myself many a time. And I'm sure that is definitely true when you're in your Bible study, but let's remember the context of that quote is actually about church discipline, about church discipleship, about having those hard conversations. Jesus, this is Jesus' way of saying, when you've got to have those hard conversations, I thought I'll be with you. I mean, you've got to go and have that difficult conversation. I, I'm there. I'm there with you. Friends, what the world needs now, I believe, is not a church that pretends to be perfect. What the world out here, broken and hurting, a world that is in desperate need of reconciliation, what it needs is, 
is a church that not pretends to be free of conflict or sin, but a church that models how sin and conflict can be transformed, can be resolved into a deeper, more genuine relationship and peace. Remember too, church, that Jesus went to the cross to bear our sins, to deal with them once and for all, to wash us clean, whiter than the snow, to reconcile us back into right relationship with God. And he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's left us to continue his ministry of reconciliation, of binding broken relationships, binding up the brokenhearted. This is a, not just a doctrine, not just a set of rules to believe. It's a, this is a relationship that he invites us into, a relationship to be enjoyed, lived out, practiced in deep, real, honest communion with one another. So church, am I my brother's or sister's keeper? Absolutely. So church, let's commit to being real with each other, to looking out for each other, having the tough conversations when needed, knowing that he will be with us in the midst of it all. Amen? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray for your help in having these tough conversations. We thank you that you are a God. It is all about relationship, Father. You desire to be in relationship with us. You came down to earth to live as one of us. Such was your commitment to being in relationship with us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your amazing grace. Even when we stuff up and we, we say and do hurtful things, hurtful to ourselves, hurtful to those around us, hurtful to you, Lord. We pray that as a church family, we might be real enough, honest enough to have those conversations, to point out the sin and to have it called out in ourselves, Father that we might enjoy true, lasting, deep communion with one another and indeed with you. In Jesus' name, the people said, Amen. Let's